morning, Bethel. All right, so in 1977, Oral Roberts, founder of Oral Roberts University, claimed to have had a vision from a 900-foot-tall Jesus who told him to build a City of Faith Medical and Research Center and the hospital would be a success. Later on in a letter from Roberts, he announced that Jesus told him, quote, I told you that I would speak to your partners and through them I would build it. Ten years later, he stated in a fundraising appeal letter and on television that unless he raised a total of $8 million above regular ministry expenses by the next month, he would die. In a fundraising letter, he wrote, quote, I desperately need you to come into agreement with me concerning my life being extended beyond March. God said, I want you to use the ORU medical school to put my medical presence in the earth. I want you to get this going in one year or I will call you home. So one of the questions that's in front of us here this morning in 1 Corinthians 14 is, does God speak today? And if so, how? Does he talk like that? Does he speak like that? So I kind of want to unsettle us a little bit here as we get started. So in case you're wondering why I'm starting this way, does God still speak today? Listen to Luke 12. Okay, so you might go, Oral Roberts, well, that's obvious. Duh. Luke 12, 11 says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Do you think that's just something that happened back then, or can that's, is, is that actually referring to things that can happen now? If so, like it can happen now, is that some sort of revelation? And if it's some sort of revelation, does that threaten the sufficiency of the canon of Scripture? Do you remember in Acts 2, at Pentecost, when the Spirit descends with power, and you know, tongues of fire over the apostles, and they speak in these various tongues, and all these folks that are gathered around from different places hear the wonders of God in their own language. And some people go, whoa, what does this mean? And others mock them. They're drunk. Peter responds and says, time out. <laughs> They're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit, not just on prophets or kings, but on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So is that in the last days pouring out of the Spirit just something that happened in the first century? Or is that something that happens between the first and second comings of Jesus in the last days? What about this? I'm not trying to draw attention to myself here. But just, you know, sometimes there's stories that get thrown around and there's hearsay and, well, you, you know... How can we verify that? Okay, so I doubt anyone would accuse me of being a charismaniac. 
So, but let me just ask you what you think of this. So, years ago, we were sharing the gospel at the mall back in Chicago with our college ministry. Just walking around, talking to people, not in a creepy, weird way, just being open about it. Hey, we're here with some people from our church talking to me about Jesus. Anyway, okay? So I'm walking by myself, and I walk right past this girl who's seated in one of those you know, benches in the mall. I can't tell you how or why this doesn't happen normally to me. I walk past her, and I knew that she was a Christian and that I needed to go back and talk to her. Oh, this is really weird. How do you start that conversation? So I went back and just told her what we were doing and said, I really felt like I should come back and talk to you. And she just, like, lit up. She was a Christian, and she had prayed on the way to the mall that night in her car. She was so discouraged. She said, Lord, I I need some encouragement. Or what about this? I heard one time about a woman who approached a pastor with a word from the Lord. At the time, his wife was pregnant, and this woman who approached this pastor said that their child was going to die. What do you do with that? Thankfully, she was wrong. So have any of you had some experiences with words from the Lord from other people that make you kind of want to distance yourself from anything like that? Seems to make sense that Paul would write to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Or J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, who has written an excellent book called Jesus Continued. We read this as elders and worked through it. Um, I think I recommended it back in the Keeping Step with, Keeping Step with the Spirit um, series. Uh, Bill, I think, pointed it out to me, and I read it toward the end of the series. I would have made it the kind of book of the month at that time had I known, because it's just really, really good. So he, he shares this story in this book. Justin, a young man in my church, told me a story recently about an Indian woman he observed sitting by herself in a city park. He had never seen her before, but had the inexplicable urge to go tell her that though her brother had recently died, God loved her and would never forsake her. He told me that this kind of thing never happens to him, but this impression was so strong. Still, he just couldn't bring himself to go up to her and say it. What if he was wrong? So he demurred. Several hours later, he ran into the same woman at a Starbucks in another part of the city. And he considered this to be God gently giving him another chance. So he held his breath, walked up to her and said, Ma'am, we've never met, and I'm not sure why I feel this way, but I had the sense that God wanted me to tell you, and he gave her the message. Justin said that when he finished, she stared at him with wide eyes for several, several terribly long seconds. Then she dropped her head and began to cry. She said, How did you know? I thought no one in this city knew. Actually, he he was not really my brother, but my cousin. But he grew up in my house, and I always thought of him as my brother. I even introduced him to others that way. He died last week. She was Hindu and had just moved away from her family in India to the United States. Justin told her that he could only guess that God gave him that message so she would know that God cared for her and had a plan for her and her family. Eventually, through further conversation, the lady came to profess Christ as her Savior. So does God still speak today? And if so, how? 
does he only do, throw, do so through his word? So if your experience is mainly of the kookiness of Oral Roberts' variety, it makes sense that you may have an allergic reaction to words from the Lord. I mean, who wants to be even associated with that? That's like guilt by association, right? But on the other hand, those open to God speaking like this today might, some of them certainly can be, some of if you're here, can be too comfortable claiming God told me and all kinds of damage is done in that name. So we all need to be, we need to strive to be shaped first, not by our experience, but by the word of God and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is hugely helpful in that regard. We've looked at chapters 12, 13 and into chapter 14 already and we're going to finish chapter 14 at least to a degree. We certainly can't address all the issues in there at length this morning, but we're going to hit it um, as best we can this morning. So the series is Cruciform Living. We need the cross, the gospel, to be at the center of our lives, shaping us, not shaped by the world around us and its values and priorities. And it certainly goes for spiritual experience as well, or the gifts and how they're utilized, their purpose. So in Corinth, there's all these problems in the realm of spiritual gifts, elevation of certain gifts over others for selfish, prideful reasons, thinking that certain flashy gifts meant that you were more spiritual, okay? So as a result, you had some fracturing and disunity in the church where you had the haves and the have-nots and people with superior complexes and inferior, inferior <laughs> easy for me to say, inferiority complexes. So Paul's trying to deal with all of that um, and bring unity and humility and love to bear, to guide the church through the use of the gifts. So he makes it very clear that every spiritual gift is given by God. He arranges the members in the body, each one as he chooses, and he does so for the common good, the building up of the body. So love needs to govern the use of the gifts. That's why it's in the smack dab in the middle between chapters 12 and 14, okay? So as we head into chapter 14, like I said last week, we looked quickly at verses 1 to 20, so we're going to look quickly again at those verses and then move on through the remainder of the chapter. Um, so let's look first, outlines in your bulletin or, or on the slides here. First point is, let all things be done for building up in verses 1 to 26. So the main point in this section is really clear that the purpose of the gifts is the building up of the body of Christ. So the Corinthians had elevated tongues as this, you know, really, really impressive, important, central gift because um, it probably accorded with the ecstatic experience of some, some of the cults of the time. And so if you're really spiritual, then you could, you could enter these ecstatic states and so forth. So they had an immature, childish mindset about the gifts. And so they were misusing tongues. They were mis-elevating tongues. And it must have seemed more impressive, more spiritual to them, certainly than some of the less conspicuous gifts. But the issue was the purpose. Paul's criteria for gifts that are greater or lesser was completely tied to how much benefit the gift had in building others up, which is why he focuses in chapter 14 more on prophecy and he downplays tongues. He doesn't dismiss it. If you look at the end of chapter 14, he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but he's really promoting the use of the gift of prophecy and even the pursuit of that gift. 
So that's how we're going to focus as well. We're going to focus on prophecy. So jump in at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy because, and he's going to give reason why he's exhorting him that way, because one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters, utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, so he's positive on tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. That's the main criteria. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring, bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So the Corinthians were obviously eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, but for selfish and prideful reasons. So Paul tells them in verse 12 what they really ought to get going hard after. Look at verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, here's what you really ought to be eager for. Here's what you really ought to strive for, is to be excelling in building up the church. They needed to grow up. Look down at verse 20. Again, this is review in a sense, because we looked at these verses somewhat last week. So brothers, do not be children in your thinking, selfish, childish, be infants and evil. There is something that you ought to be um, naive or innocent in regard to, namely evil. But as far as your thinking is concerned, you need to be mature. And maturity in the context of 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 focuses not on private personal religious experience, but it focuses on benefiting and building up others. So using those gifts for the good of others, the body, building up of the body. So he moves on in verses 21 to 25 to help them be mature in their thinking. It's a very difficult section, okay? There's lots of ink spilled on what these verses mean. So we'll try to just make sense of it without getting lost in the weeds. Um, so in the first half, think about this, the, the, the context here. In the first half of chapter 14, Paul has made it clear that tongues have to be interpreted if they are to be of any value in the church. The message has to be intelligible to the church to benefit the church. Now he's going to show that intelligibility matters with unbelievers as well. Okay, look at verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's in quotes. That's from Isaiah 28. We'll consider the context in just a minute. Thus... Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. You might expect it to be the reverse. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He is convicted by all, and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God, 
and declare that God is really among you. So, back to this quote in verse 21. The original context of that quote, Isaiah 28, it's in the context of judgment. Okay, so due to Israel's stubborn rebellion, God was going to use the Assyrian army as a tool of judgment. They were coming. So here's the point. The sound of their foreign tongue when they arrived, knocked on the door to kind of conquer the Israelites or to threaten them, the sound of their foreign tongue is the sound of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. So if prophecy is esteemed in Corinth, as Paul is instructing them, then believers in Corinth will be edified and unbelievers may be saved. The secrets of their heart are exposed because they're hearing things they understand. Whoa, whoa, this is true. Like, I, I, it's like they're laying my heart bare. On the other hand, if the Corinthians continue to fixate on tongues, the believers aren't going to be edified because they don't know what is being said. And unbelievers who visit their assembly will be turned off by the unintelligible frenzy. These people are out of their minds. Do you see? So the unintelligibility of tongues will turn off these believers and drive them away, wasting the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But if people are sharing the word of the Lord intelligibly, wisely applied to real life, prophecy, then an unbeliever may come into that assembly, overhear this powerful truth, and that the secrets of his heart are laid bare, and he'll turn from idols to worship the true and living God. This may have even been how some of you came to faith. Where maybe you even grew up in the church and you heard the gospel, but then you heard a testimony or you heard someone share or a sermon where it just, it just was like a laser beam to your heart. So, for instance, you could have someone who has heard the gospel, is familiar with it, or maybe not, and they come in, and the preacher or somebody sharing something is saying how the word was like an x-ray of their own heart. And maybe they knew about sin, but it had never really sunk in. They didn't really see their need for Christ. And all of a sudden, some passage, some truth just laid them bare, just like the word is living and active and it's sharper than any two. It sort of opens, it up, opens us up and exposes the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So imagine someone who is sharing testimony of God's work in their life and they were enslaved to some addiction or whatever and someone's listening to that. And I was self-medicating like this and running to all these false saviors and none of it satisfied and it was just killing me. And then they talk about, oh, Jesus is the real Savior. He can really save you. So all of a sudden, boom, just like a laser beam, the, their own heart is exposed and they come and fall down and worship God and see their need for Jesus as their Savior. I mean, that could happen right now, even as I'm speaking. But it certainly can happen, and that's what Paul wanted to see happen. He didn't want some kind of unintelligible, dynamic, frenzy, ecstatic speech to have outsiders come in and go, what in the world is going on? These people are out of their minds. I'm out. I don't ever want to have anything to do with the church again. That would not be edifying, right? 
So benefit, building up, is the purpose of the gifts, whether we're talking about the body of Christ or unbelievers who visit the church gathering. So with those great goals in, on the line, you can see why Paul is so adamant about them thinking maturely about spiritual gifts. So they've got to learn how all things should be done decently and in order. And he goes on in verses 26 to 38 to show them how. So let's look at that second point. All things should be done decently and in order. That's Paul's language down in verse 40 as a conclusion to this whole thing. So what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So more specifically, he gives instructions for decency and order in the exercise of tongues first. So if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And then he gives instruction for decency and order in exercise of prophecy. Look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others... Here's where there's a big question... And again, we're not going to be able to spend tons of time working this out. Is this the church that are the others? Is this the leadership doing the evaluation primary, like the elders? Is this other prophets weighing what's said? It's really challenging to determine that. So let two, but the point is, this prophecy needs to be weighed, evaluated. So let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So things need to be done decently and in order. So, there is a, do you notice this? There's a tentativeness to this prophetic ministry. This, this, this is what might be new to you or a kind of a sticking point, a real issue It is not exactly like the prophetic ministry of prophets like Isaiah or Micah. It is analogous to it, but not exactly like it. Okay, so what did a prophet do? Mediated God's word to people, right? So the people of God in the Old Testament and the church through the ministry of the apostles was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. So that foundation has been laid. The canon is closed. There is no more canonical scripture to be had or found. We should not expect any more. So the word of God, of course, was written in particular times and cultures, but its application is transhistorical and transcultural. It is authoritative and binding on all peoples at all times. We possess the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That being said, the prophecy in Corinth, even in the early first century, prior to the completion of the New Testament, was not aimed at contributing to the canon. This prophecy in 1 Corinthians 11, 14, even 12 mentions it. This prophecy being Wade was the application of God's truth to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. So it had to be evaluated. No Old Testament prophet was ever evaluated by the assembly like this, okay? 
Anytime they were, it usually meant that they were rebellious. So this gift for us today is certainly exercised in large measure through the preaching ministry in the church. Again, a prophet mediated God's word to the people. So that's what a sermon is aimed at doing every week, right? I mean, have you ever felt like a sermon is aimed right at you? I mean, if not, pray for me. <laughs> um, I've heard that. I've felt that way with, as I've sat under the Word. So this takes place in a very ordinary, I guess you could say, way on a regular basis. And it can function that way through all the various teaching posts in the church, right? It can also happen on a smaller scale interpersonally. Okay, so... I, Again, I'm not using personal examples to say, oh, I'm a prophet or something like that. I'm just saying we need to think about what this is and what it looks like. So I wonder if this actually happened yesterday. So we were at the graduation for our kids' school, and the valedictorian is a humble, godly young man, and he gave a great talk. And while he was talking, he's, he's really gifted and he is humble, but while he was talking, Isaiah 66 2 came to mind. And I really felt like I should share it with him. So I'm not going to say, God has a message for you, you know, like, I, but I grabbed him afterwards and I said, hey, hey, Aaron, you are a really gifted young man. And I just had a passage that came to mind while you were speaking, and I want to share it with you because it's hugely important. And so Isaiah 66, 2 is, this is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. It's very ordinary, isn't it? But could that not be the exercise mediating God's word, specific word for this person at this time? And I explained it a little bit. We talked about it a little bit. So pretty ordinary. But don't you know how the right words at the right time can make an indelible mark on you? Has that ever happened? And I'm not saying that that happened yesterday with this conversation. I hope it did. But God's in charge of that. But wouldn't you want to be used that way? Haven't other people been used in your life in that way? But prophecy can also function in somewhat more supernatural ways. Everything is supernatural because God's in everything here. But this is one that Alex Kirk actually recounted to me. He and Betsy were actually present when this took place. Just to give you an idea of what this can look like at times. And again, sometimes these are maybe more the exception than the rule, but we just can't put God in a box and expect that he's never going to do things like this. So back in 2004, they were at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and John Piper was preaching on Romans 12 and the gift of prophecy. So in his sermon, he made reference to something that happened the week before in his last sermon um, as an example of the gift. So he had been preaching previously on Matthew 25, on mercy ministries, and he said at one point, having a Bible study on the 36th floor of the IDS Tower, which is a prominent building in Minneapolis, having a Bible study in the IDS Tower with a group of well-to-do businessmen is not a mercy ministry. According to Piper, this illustration had not been in his notes. It just came to him out of the blue. After the sermon, Piper said that a woman came to him beaming and said, I'm a visitor to your church. I'm also involved in a Bible study on the 36th floor of the IDS Tower with a group of well-to-do businessmen. I have been considering a new venture into a mercy ministry, and I came to church today asking, the Lord would con asking that the Lord would confirm the direction I'm thinking of pursuing, and he did it in your sermon. So Piper claimed that that's an example of the gift of prophecy being used to encourage the body. 
wasn't in his notes, kind of came out of the blue. Now, is God always going to lead that way? We oftentimes are frustrated, like, which job should I take, or what should I do, or what? We can't expect that there's always going to be this prophetic word, but can God answer that way and lead and guide us that way? Absolutely. Maybe most of the time we need to, we always need to, you know, bathe our mind in the scriptures, pray, pray like crazy, um, seek wise counsel, but sometimes he also can speak to us through the gift of prophecy. So you can imagine how God could do something like that, not just in the context of a service, but also in the context of your community group. Can you imagine something, you know, you guys are praying and, you know, you know each other, you love each other, and you know that this brother or sister is really wrestling with a big life decision, and all of a sudden you're really burdened to share a particular passage or some thought with that person, and you share it, and the Lord uses it to give them guidance, to shine light on the path. can happen. I think we should expect those kinds of things. I think we should seek those kinds of things. So, um, <laughs> maybe I can put this together in another way. I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with who are struggling with the concept of prophecy continuing is this issue of it calling the sufficiency of the canon into question. Okay? And, and even, why would it need to be evaluated? If it's really from the Lord, how could error be involved in it, right? I mean, doesn't God, like, tell the truth? So where'd the error come from? You see what I'm saying? So what I want to do is take some time to look at Acts 21, but we don't have time to look at it there. Um, real simple nutshell is Paul is being led by the Spirit. The language is so clear. To go to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer. And the people, through the Spirit, are warning him not to go because he's going to suffer. And the prophet Agabus does this thing, binds his hands and says, the person you know, that's bound is going, to, is going to be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. So they're like, don't go, don't go, don't go. And then Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? Like, this is where God wants me to go. So the whole point is, through the Spirit, they're telling him not to go, and yet the Spirit is leading him to go. What is going on? Well, the point is, through the Spirit, the suffering is being made known that he's walking into. They interpret it because they love him as a warning not to go there. But he already knows he's going to suffer. And so the error of interpretation comes from their own hearts, not from the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Okay, you can look at it in detail later. Oh, boy. So, decently in order. <laughs> oh, there's this huge thing about women being silent in the churches. Okay, let's look at it. Um, the end of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there's, anyone, or if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Challenging passage on multiple levels. We could spend easily an hour more on this one. I'm not going to answer all the questions it raises. Let me just note a few things here. First, this is not an unqualified silence. Period. It can't be. Otherwise, Paul is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. 
Because back in chapter 11, he assumes and condones women praying and prophesying in the assembly. So it doesn't mean a blanket silence. So the issue actually seems to be tied to the weighing and evaluating of prophecy. And the issue of shame is also at the heart of the concern. You see it there? Um, It's shameful for a woman to speak, at least in this particular way. So what's likely is something like this, just as a woman praying or prophesying in chapter 11 in a way that dishonors her head, her husband, is prohibited. So also it's shameful for a woman to take an authoritative role of evaluation over other men after he gives a prophecy. Okay, It's not a blanket prohibition. The Bible is more than willing to challenge cultural norms in the realm of gender roles, the norms of the first century. It does so repeatedly, like women as the first witnesses at the tomb. That's crazy countercultural. But the Bible is committed to a vision of manhood and womanhood rooted in the creation order that's very much out of step with our cultural moment in the West. Christ-like spiritual leadership by worthy men in the home and in the church is something we desperately need to recover and promote, not undermine or avoid, especially in light of the gender confusion that fills our present cultural moment. That's about all we're going to be able to say on that this morning, but I'd be happy to receive your emails. Um, Although we are going on vacation, so it might be a little while before I get back to you. All right. So just like there is today, Paul knew that there would be pushback in his day, so he follows up with some further instruction. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Isn't this interesting? The prophets, this kind of prophecy is subject to the apostolic word. It's not on the same level. So, um, he follows us up. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. Um, uh, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So bottom line here, folks, Bethel Church family, let's commit to being ruthlessly, fiercely biblical. Okay, you and I, we might not like initially what the Bible says here or elsewhere about gender roles, but let's just humbly, in as objective a way as possible, listen to what the text says, understand what it meant in its first context, original context, and then wisely seek to apply it. You might not like what what the Bible says about speaking in tongues or prophecy, but let's humbly submit to the authority of the word, try not to impose a system on it, listen to what it says, wrestle through these issues, and you know what? We might disagree on some of the interpretation or application, but the big picture is really clear. All of this needs to be done in love for the building up of the church. We all need to submit to the word. We need to be aware of our biases and seek objectivity, humble objectivity under the word, being shaped by the word, being shaped by the cross, by the gospel, rather than allowing the world around us to shape us. Okay? Bottom line, just listen to these verses because that's all we'll say here. And this is a summary of the point, the main thing. Again, let's not lose the forest for the trees here. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. This is, this is a word to us directly. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Mediate faithfully the word of God 
to other people wisely. That needs to have expressions in counseling, in evangelism, in encouraging your brothers and sisters in your community group, teaching kids. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Verse 39, all things should be done decently and in order. So do you, brothers and sisters, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? We shouldn't be ho-hum about this. We should earnestly desire them, especially that we may minister God's word effectively, led by the Spirit, to others. We should do so out of love for the building up of the church and the reaching of the lost. So are you striving to excel in building up the church? Are you committed to all things being, all things relative to the gifts being done decently and in order? Um, we need to draw this to a close. So w- what should we think about all this? Um, we need to think maturely, right? Verse 20 says that. Childish thinking will stunt our growth. Mature thinking breeds maturity. So practically... We can't let experience drive, shape, cloud our interpretation. Can't let abuses close us off to what God's Word says, you know, getting an allergic reaction to something or fear, guilt by association. We can't let prophecy trump the canon practically. I mean, some people kind of start to get ho-hum about the Bible and really want a word from the Lord. No! We can hear God's voice opening the Bible anytime, every day. This is wonderful and glorious. Nothing should downplay the centrality of the Word of God. We can't let prophetic ministry ever operate above evaluation. The Lord told me, well, that's like a trump card. God will never lead you contrary to His Word. He doesn't speak out of both sides of His mouth. So for us, Bethel, like as we take these things. So what? What does that mean for us in our practice? Well, I'll mainly make this about the exercise of prophecy at Bethel, um, since we are commanded by Paul to seek this greater gift. And I'm going to just use um, a few wise thoughts from J.D. Greer to close us out here, okay? So he gives some ground rules, and I think these are helpful and practical, so we'll, we'll end with this. Um, so first, ground rules for giving words. One, never claim the authority of God on your words, even if you feel convinced the Holy Spirit might be speaking through you. He explains like this. He says, prophetic speech in our day never carries the authority or certainty of Scripture, no matter whom it's from. Never. So unless you have a verse verse reference to back up your words, don't say emphatically, God says. Rather, say something like this. I believe God might have put this on my heart to say to you. Words of prophecy should always be given with a, a lot of humility and a bit of tentativeness. Because you see, when you claim the authority of God, you put the other person in a terrible position. He must either fully heed your word or feel like he is rebelling against God or think you're a quack. Paul makes it clear that all prophecies are subject to testing, including our own. Second, prophetic speech is strongest when tied to actual scripture. That one's obvious. Three, the gift of prophecy has a purpose. Again, we can't ever lose sight of this. It's central. Building up the church and guiding us in mission. Use it only for those things. Amen to that. And then some ground rules for receiving words. One, it's okay to be a little skeptical. 
Paul tells us to test the prophecies, which means to be by nature a little skeptical. At the same time, he tells us not to despise prophecies, 1 Thessalonians 5. In other words, don't believe someone just because he or she claims to have heard from God, but neither should you let your skepticism keep you from receiving what God might want to say to you through a member of his body. Two, ask, does this word contradict what God has said in the scriptures? If someone says to me, God told me to divorce my wife because I'm in love with another woman, I say, really? God told you that his word in Matthew 5.32 doesn't apply to you? I'm sorry, I'm going to need to see that in writing with a notarized signature by another member of the Trinity. (laughs) Words from the Spirit always line up with existing scriptures. The scriptures are the first place you test the prophecy. Third, ask, does the word accord with what I know God is doing in my life? Does this word line up with other things you see God doing in your heart? For example, if you're a girl and some guy claims that God has put put on his heart that you're supposed to marry him, yet you feel no attraction to that person, you can safely assume that word is not from God. Does the word resonate with what you've been sensing, speaking clarity into into questions you've had? Does it line up with your giftings and passions? Do others in the church corroborate it? So just some practical things. And you can see how this can flesh out so naturally in a community, community group. Or after the service. You just... Walk by so-and-so, and you really want to encourage him about something that the Lord lays on your heart. Or, you know, we've done those community discussions at the end of the service in that context. Um, we need to quit. So, let all things be done in order to edify for the good of the church and the glory of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We thank you that we are members of your body, Lord Jesus. We thank you for willingly giving your body to be broken, shedding your blood so that our sins could be washed away, so that we could be restored to fellowship with the Father through you. We thank you for all of the blessings that are ours in Christ, including the membership in the church and the gifts of the Spirit given for us and for others through us. And we pray that you would build up this body, make us healthy and strong, help us to be mature, full of love, others-oriented and serving one another in love and being a bright light to this community that people would see us and see you in and through us and that they would fall to their knees and say, God is truly among these people. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.